All right. Thanks, Dad. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, Good to see everybody back. When we last left the action, there was trouble brewing. Uh, There was uh, this this whole uh, conflict with the Philistines. And um, the the people of Israel were uh, six or seven, well, I guess about 600 of them. And they're in the nooks and crannies of the mountain, uh, hiding out, and they see the Philistines across the way, and they are um, uh, amassing and, and getting, getting ready to rumble, so to speak. And um, so here we go. Chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go up over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. And the one crag rose up on the north in front of Mishmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. So the, the writer here is really setting the stage for us, right? So we know the characters, we know the location, uh, we know the, the background and, and so forth. And recall when it said, and the young man who carried his armor, as we think about the armor of Jonathan, remember we just learned at the end of chapter 13 that Saul and Jonathan were really the only ones who had weapons, right? Uh, because uh, there were no blacksmiths among the Israelites. And um, you would think with all their practice making these idols, maybe they would have learned how to make something more useful. Uh, but apparently that wasn't the case. So here we go, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, in other words, these pagans. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I think of all the verses that we're going to, to read over the next, I don't know how many, uh, we may get through the end of chapter 15, we'll see. But this one is the one that is that has stuck with, with me the most, uh, because it says, it doesn't matter to the Lord, right? It doesn't matter how many of us there are, but there got to be at least some of us, right? Uh, this this means this has nothing to do with the story, but it does make remember a comment. Uh, you guys recall uh, uh, Kathy Kuhn has played the guitar in the in the praise team, and her husband Jim said to me one day. This was five or ten years ago when it was kind of the first time when the, the, the Powerball lottery was like a billion dollars, right? And I heard people talking about that people that normally didn't play the lottery were like, you know, I might need to play that lottery. <laughs> and, uh, and Jim said, well, well, yeah, I bought a ticket. He said, you know, if the Lord wants me to win the lottery, um, I don't have to buy a bunch of tickets, but I do have to buy at least one. <laughs> right? So... And the logic, I mean, you, you, gotta, you, can't, you can't deny that. So here's Jonathan saying, well, you know, God doesn't need a lot of people, 
but he needs at least some, you know, but it doesn't matter how many. So, um, now I've totally lost my, <laughs> uh, thank you, as we give a promo to the Powerball. Um, <laughs> Pastor Bobby may call me, I don't know. Uh, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is with your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. I mean, what more do you want from your companion, right? Uh, verse 8, then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the other men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in, in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. So you have to infer that, I mean, we don't just make up these little games for God, right? Uh, but we have to infer that this was somewhat of a special case that God had not only given them the initiative and the, the vision of, of going forth to do something, but um, this, this kind of divine reinforcement um, uh, decision-making was probably part of that whole package. Um, but don't be flippant when you try to, to put these little uh, quizzes out for God. It, it, it may not be quite the reliability that you... Are looking for, but it wasn't in, in Jonathan's case. So, uh, in verse eleven, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, "Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves." <laughs> and you can just picture them popping up, you know, hey. And uh, this could this could really be a great movie. I, in fact, I meant to look on YouTube to see if someone had actually like done this as a movie. I, I, I didn't get a chance to do that. VeggieTales do it? Yeah, that, it could have been. I know they. I know the uh, VeggieTales did a, like a David and Goliath one, but uh, maybe they did. In any event, verse 12, And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you something. We'll show you a thing. We would say a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. In other words, hey, this is what we asked for. Let's go. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed him, killed them after him. At that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison, and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So they go up there and whip up on these folks to the tune of 20 men, and, you know, everything goes crazy. There's this panic um, in the land uh, or in the camp. Uh, the earth quaked and so forth. And you'll recall several times throughout Scripture we've seen this situation where God kind of instills this supernatural fear over the enemies. We saw it with Gideon and then all the way back when uh, Joshua and Caleb and crew were scouting out the land um, to come into the promised land, and they met up with Rahab, and Rahab says, hey, I want to be with y'all because we've heard of the panic and the fear that had, and the terror, I think is the word that she used, that accompanies, you know, when God's on y'all's side. And so this concept of the supernatural fear and panic uh, as part of the uh, kind of secret weapon, so to speak, is uh, is not new. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, so they're 
seeing all this, or they become aware of it. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. In other words, I don't know who's doing this, but I didn't authorize this, so who's missing? And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, there is a, a bit of difference between translations here as to whether or not your translation decides to use the Hebrew text uh, as the basis for um, kind of the source of truth. Or in some translations, they actually use what's called the Greek Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that they would have had in Jesus' day. Okay, so um, if you had the Bible in the early days of, of Jesus and beyond, um, uh, if 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 you had a, a Greek Bible rather than a Hebrew Bible, uh, that would have been the, the transcript. And there are really good copies of that. Now, of course, that happened, that, well, hundreds of years later, but it's still 2,000 years old for us, right? So it's still old and still authentic. So there's, there's differences between um, the Greek version or the Hebrew version, and one says ark, the other says ephod. And the commentators kind of go back and forth on which one is most accurate. Most of the people I read lean toward that this might mean ephod when it talks about the ark going because the ephod was this breastplate that the priest wore, right? And it was on the breastplate that you had the two dice, for lack of a better word, the umum and thermum or whatever. We'll see that in a minute. Uh, these, these lots that they cast were set into the breastplate. Uh, as a decision-making uh, tool. And so some people think that um, this ephod that is traveling with them uh, may not have been the ark, but may have been the ephod. So uh, just one of those little things. Um, whose translation might have ephod? Does anybody have it where it says ephod? I think the, the New Living Translation does. Uh, I think the, the Revised Standard might, the New Revised Standard might. Anyway, some re very respectable translations. Um, will not have ark. All right, uh, let's see, 18. All right, verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So what's happening here? Um, Paul, uh, keep doing that. Saul is wanting to consult with the priest about whether he needs to kind of go into the battle now or not. So he calls the priest over to do that, and then as he surveys and see what's going on, he basically says, never mind, we're going in. That's basically what happens because he sees what's, what's happening and he's like, you know, I got this one. And he, he just moves on from the priest. He said, yeah, withdraw your hand. You know, I'm, we got this. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. So the Philistines were starting to turn on each other. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So you have some, uh, the Philistines had been hanging out there where there were some Hebrews who had kind of just started 
hanging out with the Philistines, right? So some locals that Philistines probably said, hey, um, you know, go get us some, uh, go get us some grain and, you know, we'll be nice to you when we take over the Philistines. And so some Hebrews looking at the 20,000 versus the 600, we're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're going to go with who we think is the winning side. But they're there amongst the camp, and when they see how things are going, then they jump into the fight and say, no, yeah, we're really with the Israelites. Uh, forget all that other stuff. Verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. You know, they weren't at the front of the fight, but they got in there eventually. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So then we have this strange twist, you know, and this is one of those things that, you know, Saul just really can't get out of his own way. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted any food. So there's a, also a little bit of a difference of opinion. So it could be that Saul had said, um, I don't know if this is some sort of perverted leadership motivation thing to say, all right, until we finish this thing off, nobody eats. It could be easily construed that way. Or it could be, you know, y'all are not in this game. You know, you're not doing very well. So, so nobody eats until you do get in the game. It could be either because of their behavior or it could be that their behavior went bad because of his oath. Uh, chicken, and, I don't know. Uh, could have gone either way. And then it says, now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. Um, uh, apparently there's some confusion about this verse too. Apparently the word forest and the word honey have the same root. And so I don't know if other translations um, say something different. Does anybody have a translation that says something different than all the people came to the forest and there was honey on the ground? Mm -hmm. Roughly the same thing? Okay. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of the staff that was in his hand, dipped it in the honeycomb, and put the hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. In other words, this helped. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, Really? <laughs> that was not smart uh, he says my father has troubled the land see how my eyes have become bright because I taste a little of this honey how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great in other words think how many people we could kill if we would have something to eat look how much better I am already within this entire chapter it's starting to be pretty obvious there is this contrast that the writer is putting up between Jonathan, who is with the Lord, and Saul, who is in the neighborhood of the Lord, but not exactly aligned with the Lord. He's impulsive. He, you, you, you kind of get the contrast that's developing between these two people. 
Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very faint. I mean, think about this, all day fighting. I haven't been all day fighting, but I'm sure I would be hungry. The people pounced on the spoil, took sheep and oxen and calves, and slaughtered them on the ground. They were so hungry, they start butchering uh, the, the spoil of war there. And the people ate them, but they were hasty. It says they ate them with the blood. So they did not take time to drain out the blood, which is one of the old Leviticus teachings that you had to drain out, don't eat the blood, you know. And Saul says, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord with the blood. And he said, you know, bring a stone over here. Everybody, bring your oxen, sheep, slaughter them here on this stone. I'm paraphrasing. Don't sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So they brought the ox and slaughtered them and so forth. And it says, and Saul, this is verse 35, and Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Another little point of contention here as to what that verse means. Some people say he started to build an altar but didn't finish it. Which that would be like him, right? Verse 36. Saul says, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems to you. But the priest said, let's draw near to God here. So the priest pulls Saul aside and says, let's see what God has to say about this, right? Now, the priest backed away earlier in the story, but now he's pulling, he's taking the initiative and saying, you know, let's, let's see what God has to say. Let's draw near to God here. And Saul says, okay, fine. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he, that is God, did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And so now we're back to this oath-breaking thing. Verse 40. He said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I shall be Jonathan on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. So Saul said... Why haven't you answered me? He's saying to God, why haven't you given me an answer? Is it because of something I've done or something because Jonathan's done? You know, he says, uh, or something to the people, right? Yeah. Verse 41, let me read it instead of paraphrasing so I'll get it right. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, give Thummim. And so it fell to Jonathan and Saul, and the people were off the hook. So then he, he, it's like a tournament. So he's narrowed it down. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Okay, so um, Saul's like, What's, why haven't you answered me? And he narrows it down, and now he's putting the blame on Jonathan. And then Saul says, what have you done? And he said, I tasted some honey with the tip of my staff. Here I am, I will die. And uh, Saul says, you will surely die. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation of Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not a hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. 
Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So the people beg for Jonathan's life, and Saul relents. So here we have this, this whole, you know, again, Saul just doesn't, he's just not a great leader, right? And one of the things that you'll see here and that you'll also see later, um, Saul has the trappings of a true believer. But he's not really aligned with God in his heart. Um, he gets anxious, um, impatient, which we've seen this before, remember, when he didn't wait for Samuel to show up that day. Um, he's upset with God, basically. He said, why haven't you answered me? But then he's going to chew out the people because they were so hungry because of his stupid vow because they were in too big a hurry to slaughter their animals when it was really his fault. And instead of taking the blame for the stupid oath that he made, which none of that is in there, oh my gosh, my son Jonathan's going to die, I wish I hadn't have said that oath. How stupid of me, what an idiot I was. There's none of that. It's just, okay, Jonathan will die, that's how the dice fell. In other words, you know, it's, it's now to me or Jonathan, and well, <laughs> sorry Jonathan, instead of taking responsibility. So you get the idea of Saul, there's he, he has good words sometimes, but they're not really aligned with where his heart is. So verse 47, let's finish this. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, so we have this little summary paragraph here. He fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly. He struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So so he had some battles, right? The narrator is pulling out for us those things that tell the important parts of the story. So the important parts of the story are, yeah, Saul wasn't a, a bad military commander necessarily, but when it came to those crucial points of either following God or following his own way, he tended to go his own way. Verse 49, we have his family tree. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, uh, what, Malkishua, and the names of his daughters were Merab and Michael, Saul's wife, and so forth. I won't go through all this. Verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So he's kind of gathering up uh, the good guys. All right, chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman and child and infant and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. Was Samuel clear here? Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So 
He's had some battles. He's had some wins. The army has grown. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you, I'm sorry, for you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So there's this group of people, the Kenites, who are hanging out with the Amalekites. And Saul says, okay, my beef isn't with y'all, so y'all leave because you're going to get caught up in this if you don't. Kind of self-explanatory. But isn't it interesting that Samuel tells Saul, this is all about what happened when my people were trying to come out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt. This is all going back to then. And there's a verse... should look at my notes every so often. It's an Exodus. Yeah, somebody had a footnote. Anyway, the bottom line is, um, he says, uh, I don't believe I can't find it. Where was it? Here we go. Uh, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Um, yeah, Exodus seventeen, fourteen. 14. Um, the Amaleks had tried to prevent the Israelites from uh, reaching their territory, and um, they wanted to blot out the people of Israel, so God's, it's personal, so to speak. And so here we are, what, 400 years later, and now things are lined up, and Saul is put to the task to annihilate this people. So, Verse 7, and Saul defeated the Amalekites. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Is this what he was told to do? It was not. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. We talked about this transition from the judges as being the intermediary between the people and God. They followed on the hills of Moses and Joshua. And we talked about that God was saying, okay, I'm going to give you a king because you asked for a king, but it's not going to be like the king 
relationship that you see among all your heathen neighbors, this is going to be a king where it's a covenantal kingship, where if you follow my covenants, and if my king follows my covenants, then things are going to go well with you. And so here we have it restated. Follow me, do my commandments. And he says, I made Saul king, but he's not following me, and he's not doing my commandments. So here we have something really interesting. It says, and Samuel was angry, part one. You know what he was saying, like, really? I was so clear. I told him. God, I told him what you said. I can't believe he's done this again. Yeah, I mean, you can, I'm sure Samuel had a nice Hebrew rant. But then he says, and he cried to the Lord all night. So you can take that to mean that he was mad, but at the same time, he was still pleading to God for the people and so forth. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told, Samuel, um, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Is that true? Maybe not. And Samuel said, <laughs> this is hilarious. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? <laughs> I've done it, Samuel. Look, I've killed the Amalekites. And Samuel just says, really? Maybe it's my imagination. I, I, is that bleeding I hear? Are the cows? Do you guys have cows now? I don't remember you having cows before. What, what's with the? What's with that? And Saul says, "Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, we've we've got cows. They they brought them. They right? They do. You see any kingly buck stops with me? I'm going to take responsibility. No. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people." Spare the people, those dastardly people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. So again, we have Saul is very, he knows, right, he's been in Sunday school, he knows the right things to say. <laughs> oh yeah, but these are for the sacrifice. Then Samuel said to Saul, just stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. I have a little hard time interpreting this, though you are little in your own eyes. And I, I, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to investigate what that really means. Um... But I think it's something to the effect that, you know, regardless of what you think for yourself, aren't you the king? Don't you have some responsibility here? Verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission 
and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Did you catch that? Whose Lord is it? Right. The Lord your God, Samuel. He didn't say, my God. And Samuel said, a famous verse here, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. You know what God thinks about your sacrifices? You might as well be a witch. That's what he thinks of that. It is better to obey than sacrifice. This concept is, is echoed... Um, uh, over in Isaiah, you know, people obey me with their lips. You know that verse. Then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. So we have some repentance here. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. So, Saul, have you sinned? Yes, but it's a yes, but confession. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, isn't that ironic? He was not fearing the right person. If he had feared God and obeyed his voice, he wouldn't be in this trouble but he feared the people and obeyed their voice. I wish I could say I had not ever done that. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return for you, with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore, and Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Whether, you know, he's reaching after Samuel's garment in desperation or anger, we don't know. But in any event, Samuel's not having it. But then we're going to see just one more time how insincere Saul's confession is. Then he says, verse 30, I have sinned. But yeah, now honor the elders of my people before Israel and return to, with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. 
In other words, I know I've sinned, but can you just kind of make me look good in front of the people? Can you kind of smooth this over with the people? So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. This is also a little funny. And Agag comes to him cheerfully, thinking, Surely the bitterness of the death is past. In other words, you know, I think I'm good here. <laughs> right? They're bringing the priest. It's going to bless me, and it's going to, you know, I think, I think I made it. And Samuel says, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Hmm. Okay. So we have God telling Saul, um, I want you to be king. And if you didn't know, there's a Philistine garrison in your hometown. You know, why don't you take care of that? He doesn't. Ultimately, his son Jonathan does. There's an army there. Um, Jonathan has to lead that. Um, he gets a command, take care of the Amalekites. He doesn't finish that. Samuel has to finish that. Verse 34, it says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but, Saul, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Samuel, as the last of the judges, he is the one that is still, since the kingship has just been such an ill fit for Saul, at least in terms of the religious and the covenantal component of it, it's still Samuel that is ultimately pleading for the people, right? He's the one that's still providing guidance. Um, you know, you've heard of people, well, when I, when I leave this job, I'm going to transition. You know, uh, I was talking to Ken. He retired last year, but he told me that he was still working with people in Georgia for like six or eight months afterwards and just in transition, right? And so you've got Saul being a king, having Samuel as the ultimate advisor, you know, basically telling you what to do. But it's just heart, his just heart was not fully aligned with God. But Samuel is still, he still feels for the people. And he says he grieved over Saul. He, he wasn't happy about it. And then it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. All right. So, um, what do we learn through all this? There's a lot of stuff here. What 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 would you get out of these chapters? You need to obey the Lord first. You need to obey the Lord first. Amen. To obey is better than sacrifice. What else? Oh, it's interesting. He said the Lord the Lord regretted that yeah. he that made Saul the king of Yeah. But that's we were made in God's image, so I guess Yeah. It's like uh, it's it's interesting, right? Because we know that God's all-knowing. We know that he's all-powerful. We know that he's sovereign. Nothing happens without his kind of global permission, so to speak. Um, but here we have God 
basically saying, why did I do that? But yet, it all worked ultimately to his glory. What else? Well, my Bible says grieved instead of regret. Grieved? And, you know, um, we, can, we can love our children and, and point them in the right direction and still be grieved by what they do. Okay, yeah. What else? Uh, does God have a long memory? <laughs> he does. And he is all knowing. You know? You know, the the Amalekites, you know, as an I mean, they'd been around a while. They were organized enough as a people to harass the people of Israel, you know, hundreds of years before. Um but God said, I'm going to be at war with these people. And here it is again. I'm at war with these people. I need you to blot them out. And of course, it doesn't happen. Um, there are some descendants of the Amalekites that show up again. I think it's in Isaiah or Jeremiah. Um, it's, still, it's still not over. Um, And it ultimately matters where you, whether you align yourself with God's plan or not, whether you follow his instructions or not, whether you have the right timing with his instructions or not, um, and whether your heart's in the right place or not. Saul messed up bad, right? He said he was sorry. Okay. But he said, I'm sorry, but it was the people, right? He bl blamed somebody else. He never took responsibility. David messed up. He messed up bad. If you go over, though, and you read about David's confession, it says, basically, I have sinned, period. Doesn't try to blame anybody else. Um, and there you have the difference. All right. So, up to Saul. You may have heard of this guy named David. He comes on the scene soon. So, that I guess that's a good handoff. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what an amazing account of uh, this little snapshot of history that shows um, that you are... Um, compassionate, that you give second chances, that you give guidance, you bring circumstances to bear for your glory um, and for your success. We see that you are always about your people, you are always about uh, justice, um, and ultimately we see how things are lining up um, to bring us a better king who will then be the ancestor of an even better king. And we thank you for our King Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.